0: We are going to read in Psalm 90 today, if you'd turn there. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past this is the word of the Lord.
1: Be to God. As we can uh, continue through the uh, preaching of the Psalms, may God satisfy us this morning with his steadfast love. I don't know if Daniel Boone was more prepared for than us in every way, but I do know that Daniel Boone was more prepared for us likely in one way. He was a man who prepared for his own death. He had this casket made for himself, custom fit to make sure it wasn't uh, too big or too small for his size, and he would often keep it under his bed. And not only would he keep it under his bed, but he'd get it out at times. And not only would he get this casket out at times, but he'd polish it. He he would look at it. He would would make sure it was all looking good and right. And not only would he get this casket out and polish it, but sometimes he would take naps in it. Often, or a few times at least, his children and grandchildren would catch Daniel Boone taking a nap in his casket. His granddaughter, Delinda, recalled that he would rub it and polish it and coolly whistle while doing so And sometimes his preparation for death in this casket would frighten the children in the Boone home because they would see him lying down in the coffin to show that it fit him and to take a nap. Now that may sound strange to us, Daniel Boone and his coffin, but a coffin can be a tremendous reminder, a tremendous teacher that can help our hearts lay to bear the, the reality of our own impending death. Uh, and if that lesson, the lesson that the coffin can teach us, if that is received rightly, then what it can do for us is can give us a heart of wisdom. I'm not suggesting that we, we all go out and we get a custom fit coffin for us and put it under our bed, take it out and polish it and then make sure, lie down in it every now and then to make sure it still fits and even to take naps in it. But I do think that that could teach us much. That the coffin itself, the reality of our own impending death, can teach us and give us a heart of wisdom. Psalm 90 is this psalm that has all these time references stamped throughout the psalm. You you can't avoid them. And, And what Psalm 90 is teaching us with all those time stamps is to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. That doesn't mean nap in a casket doesn't mean get it out and polish it but it does mean that we need to know that that's where we're going need to know and have a sense of our own brevity and in psalm 90 he he puts man's brevity in front of us in light of god's eternality that he's everlasting and in light of god's wrath we ought to be a people who number our days psalm 90 is a psalm of moses moses wrote this which reminds us just from the start of the treasure that we have in the book of psalms that we have God's saints of the past have collected for us this treasure trove of prayers and songs to sing together and pray together from about a thousand-year period. And Psalm 90 starts with how Moses and Israel would have known and have experienced God in the past when he says, verse 1, is made of God writes, Lord, you have been our, notice he's speaking collectively with the people of Israel, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, when Moses met God at the burning bush, God told him in Exodus chapter 3, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. In other words, I'm a God who spans generations. And Moses, near the end of his life, He affirms the same truth and reality. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, right at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses' final sermon, he says some words that are so close to what he says here in verse 1. He says, verse 27 of chapter 33, the eternal God, that's coming in verse 2, is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. In Psalm 90 fits the setting of deuteronomy the the very end of Moses' life as the people of god the edge near the promised land what are some final encouragements that he wants them to have how does he want to fortify them on the edge of the promised land as he knows he's getting ready to pass away and die and they're going to go in without him what does he want to give them he wants to tell them that the lord has been our dwelling place for all these generations The the promised land was a a place that gave the people of Israel some sense and some hope of of permanence. Their homes, up to that point, had been scattered. Their homes, up to that point, had been brief. Notice, think about their lives. Some of them would have remembered some sort of residence that they had taken up in Egypt, which wasn't even their home. They weren't there as permanent residents. They were there, they knew it as a place of of slavery. They are there as slaves. And then they get out of Egypt, and where do they go? No permanent uh, residence, no five-star hotel. They go into the wilderness. It's a place of wandering and sojourning. But Moses says, you've had a home. You've had, that is, a refuge and a dwelling place. It's a remarkable statement and description of God. A dwelling place is a place of refuge, a place of safety, a place of provision, a place of strength. And Moses says, that's what God has been for us as his people. Like the, the dwelling place is the place where you... You, you run into and you lock the door behind you and, and keep people out. The dwelling place is the place where you run into and you know that this is a good place for you because the pantry's full of food and provision. The dwelling place is the place you go into and you know that you're gonna have safety, not only of locked doors, but the safety of relationship. And that's what God had been for his people. This is where they are to go. They've been refreshed in this dwelling place with rest. God has been all that. God has daily borne them up. As they wandered in the wilderness, what happened? Their clothes didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their enemies couldn't touch them. God was their dwelling place. Each day, they're, they're in a wilderness. They, they don't have a place to get food. And each day, God is their dwelling place. Dropping bread down from heaven. Giving them water from this barren wasteland. He bore them up. God sustained them in the wilderness as their dwelling place. They were displaced in so many ways. They were sojourners and wanderers, but they had a dwelling place with God. H- have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you, you're living your life out of a suitcase, out of boxes? Maybe you have known moving a lot in your life and it feels like we're always packing or unpacking and it never seems like we, we can put the boxes away. Or, or maybe you, you, you live far away from home, and so each time you go home, you pack your suitcase, you go there, and it takes a, you stay there for a long time, and it feels like the whole time you don't get to like, put the clothes in the closet. You've got to live out of the suitcase, and you're constantly packing, repacking, all that kind of stuff. You ever felt like that? Well, Moses and Israel and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they can all relate to that. All of God's people, they were sojourners and strangers, but that doesn't mean that they didn't have a dwelling place. So if you feel displaced and like you're just wandering and a sojourner and a stranger in this world, you can find your home and your dwelling place with God. You can run to Him and find in Him one who will be your refuge, your strength, your security, your provision for all of your days. God can be for us a dwelling place, a place of provision, protection, and constancy in the midst of our wanderings. And Moses went From meeting the God of those generations in Exodus 3 where he said I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to ending in Deuteronomy with the affirmation of God you have been our dwelling place in all these generations that I've known as well. And if you sojourn with God, if you wander around this world but you are in relationship with God, you can know the same that he affirms here. God as this dwelling place of all generations is this truth that can bring great comfort and encouragement and hope and help in the midst of wonderings. Even if that wondering leads down into death. The death that Moses knew that he was going into and yet he still affirms with great confidence you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Jesus. He goes back to Exodus chapter 3 and he uses that verse as well. Remember the Sadducees, they, they didn't believe in the resurrection, and they're questioning Jesus about it, and Jesus has to come to them and says, you're quite wrong, and he looks at Exodus 3, where God had said, I'm the God of I- Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and what does he say from that? God is not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living, and, and so what this dwelling place is all generation is, is that he's the dwelling place of all those who have faith and trust in him, and those who trust in him, and who run to him, and to hold on to him as their dwelling place will, will a dwelling place not just in life but also in death he's the God of the living like when Jesus steps on the scene like Abraham's been gone for a while and yet he references that and says God's not the God of the dead and so those with a particular eye to the resurrection can see something even more beautiful than what Moses can affirm on his own here those who trust in God who run to him who hold on to him as their dwelling place will be able to pray and sing verse 1 in life and in death And this is just as Moses and faithful Israel and all other faithful generations of the past they have been able to do. They have been able to say, you have been our dwelling place. You have been what we have needed all along. This is why Isaac Watts, he wrote this great hymn, God, our help in ages past from this psalm. And it starts with this. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. God is Our eternal dwelling place. Now Psalm 90 verse 1, it fortifies, it comforts, it encourages sojourners in their wanderings with God as this dwelling place. And perhaps right before Israel steps out through the river, through through the Jordan River and into the promised land, this new generation would need that kind of help to fortify them to move into the promised land. And God can be that kind of help. Be that kind of comfort. Provide what they need as they prepare to step into that because he is an eternal God. And that's where verse 2 takes us. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you were formed, the earth and the world, or before you ever had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses, at this point, may be near his death. He may be days, hours away, even as he writes this psalm, But he lifts his readers up with the great thought that God has been our eternal dwelling place. And guess what? This God is eternal. He, he gives them the thought of an eternal God. From everlasting to everlasting. God was before all things. And God was before all things as God. Not just that he was everlasting, but he's everlasting as God. He never had a beginning. He, he will never have an end. No time measurement can be placed on God and actually fit rightly because he's from everlasting to everlasting. There is no time that will do for this God. He is a God who is not temporary. He is from everlasting to everlasting. There's not just a blip on the radar or a large chunk of history that he is in. He is from both sides and they never stop. That is the eternality of our God. He's the eternal I am. Like we are human beings, and we are never, you know, we're, we're always changing, and, and the world is changing around, so like, we're never the same, it's, it's shifting every single second, he is the only one that can actually be I am, he, he is being, and, and he is, was, and he is, and he, and he will be, he is the eternal I am, and this single truth can make the mind explode, but it is especially highlighted in light of man's experience, verse 3 says, you return man In Psalm 90, it goes from this everlasting God, that the one who was God, before there were even mountains or anything was formed, to talking about the things that were formed. Man out of the dust was formed. And he says, that man, in light of this everlasting God, is going to return to that dust. It kind of alludes back to the creation account, where God, a different word, but still, like what does God do? He takes dirt there, and he breathes life into it. And he tells them, like here, like, You came from dust, you're going to return to dust. Even if that dust lasted, I don't know, a thousand years, we're going to find out that that's not very long. Or 969 years, like Methuselah is, it would be as a watch in the night, not lasting long. That the years and lives of men are swept away, he says, as with a flood. And the flood, what it does is it sweeps things away and keeps going as if they weren't even there. Like, it doesn't notice what it is swept away. That's the idea of a flood. It's like a dream. Life and years are like a dream. They're very faint. Like, you have some notice of them in the middle of the night. You wake up and you're kind of like, what was that again? I almost can't even put it back together. They're like a dream. That's life. Or like grass, if you don't like that, that goes from flourishing in the morning to withering in the evening. And Moses and Israel saying, hey, that's what we're like. And they would have known this pretty greatly because of all that they had witnessed. These people had seen those that had seemed untouchable, invincible, return to the dust when death passed through Egypt on that Passover night. They had seen some of the sturdiest people that they had known swept away by the Red Sea as they walked across on dry land. And of Israel, just within the people of Israel, they would have known That some of the people uh, that kind of woke up with great life and flourishing in them like the grass withered as a plague came through the camp because of their sexual immorality and killed 24,000 in a day. They would have known the withering as the serpents came into their camp and some passed away. They would have known some of the withering as fire cuts down 250 men who wouldn't regard God as holy. Moses and Israel, they, they don't just give these descriptions of these things, they've witnessed these things. They know the weight of the brevity of man. And so right after verse 1, we get verse 3 through 6. Right after God's our eternal dwelling place is man is really, really brief. Right after God's an eternal God, we go to man is dust. From everlasting to everlasting to dust that comes and goes. A watch in the night, swept like a flood, just like a dream. Grass that raises and withers. I like what Spurgeon says. He captures it well when he says, "Here's the history of the grass, sown, grown, blown, mown, gone." And the history of man is not much more." What Psalm 90 is doing is it is trying to put before us starkly this contrast between this uh, dwelling place for all generations and this dust that is man. From this everlasting God who is before all things to this man who is swept away by the things that God had created so quickly. It is putting before us and starkly man's brevity. It is a very sobering reality to read these words from Psalm 90. It vividly captures man's brevity and highlights our mortality in light of God's eternality. And part of that dust of a life, the being like grass that grows and Is being blown and mown and gone. It's part of the experience. Verse 3 alludes to creation. That this children of man, that's Adam going back to the garden, that's the same word. What comes as part of creation now is death. Not because it was original, but because sin entered into the world. And this is why Moses says in verse 7, We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. The, the end is by God's wrath. This was not creation's design, but the result of the fall, the result of sin against God. God warned Adam and Eve that the day that they eat the fruit of the tree, they would surely die, that their sin would lead to death. And still, they take and they eat, and death entered into the world. They fell. And we need to not get the wrong idea with this fall as if Adam and Eve kind of slipped accidentally into something they weren't supposed to do. They rebelled against God. They rejected His lordship. They decided that their ideas were better than His and they took and they ate. And now because of that fall, all people since Adam and Eve are born in sin And follow in that same rebellion that they displayed in the garden, that Israel displayed in Egypt, and in the wilderness, and in the promised land, and on and on it goes. All have sinned, and because all have sinned, all are moving toward death because God's wrath is against sin and calls for death. It is sin that provokes God's anger and wrath. His anger, His wrath, it's not a mood. It's not Him waking up and having a grumpy day. It is His displeasure over sin. It is His displeasure over rebellion. It is His displeasure over not seeing the good that He created for us to live in and walk in. God's wrath is His holy reaction to sin. In verse 8, there's plenty before Him. It says that you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, Moses recognizes, Israel recognizes and confesses, like, yes, verse seven, and we see verse seven, that our days pass away, they're brought to an end by your anger, and that's just, like, they're looking, and they're saying, God God is not being mean here, he's being just, this is what should happen for our sin, they say, secret sins, they're no secret to God. They're not hidden before him. He knows all. All sin is exposed. The the phrase here is before the light of his face. Everything is exposed before him. Adam and Eve, they sinned and they tried to hide. And God walked in the garden and found them. Cain, he acts like he can get away with killing his brother. And when God comes questioning, he's like, what are you talking about? Am I my brother's keeper? And yet God knew because the blood was crying out from the ground Achan, he takes treasure, he hides it in his tent, he buries it in the ground, he thinks no one will know, and God says, let's draw up some lots, and let's make sure we find out who committed this evil, and it goes right to Achan. David tries to cover his sin with Bathsheba, and the prophet Nathan shows up and says, you're the man. Paul is on his merry way to Damascus, trying to carry out the Lord's work as he thinks it is. And the Lord Jesus Christ appears to him when he thinks that he's done nothing but be faithful to God. The arrogant in the book of Psalms, here's what they say in chapter 10, verse 11. Here's one of their statements that you could get from the arrogant who think that God doesn't see. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. But verse 8 says, everything is before the light of his face. We can try to hide it. We can try to cover it up. We can try to keep it secret. We can think that we're immune. We can do some things to perform other deeds to make sure that like maybe our good will outweigh our bad. We can do all of those things, but here's what Psalm 90, verse 8 says: all of them are before God. He knows every single bit of it. John Owen said that what a man is in secret, that he is in the eyes of God and no more. You are what you are in secret before God. There is no secret place with him where he doesn't know and hasn't exposed. All of your sin, all of your heart, all of your motivations, all of your desires. And that is what you are before God. Do you know this of yourself? Are you trying to get away with the idea that I can have some secret sins and that no one will know about it and maybe it won't matter in the end? That is not what Scripture tells us. What a sobering thought. This morning, you are who you are in secret before the Lord. And Psalm 90 is an honest admission that if that's true, then... We deserve the wrath of God, the anger of God. It's an honest admission that could be on the lips of all people because all sin. And because of our sin, death has entered into the world. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, uh, Sin came through one man and spread to all men because all sinned. And so we can't just like, hey Adam, it's your fault. No, we have this propensity in us to sin. We are in Adam. And we deserve God's wrath. And verse 9 says, All of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? The the days go like a sigh. Just like that, they're gone. He says the years, they might get to 80. He's not trying to be precise. Like some maybe, some more, some less. He knew 120 But even if it's 969, even if it's 1,000 years, verse 4 says that's not even very long before the Lord. Still a breath, still a mist, still, use the words here of of verse 10, it flies away. Like you can't get a quicker way of getting out of here than flying. It doesn't walk away, it flies. It's out of here, it's gone. That's like life. And the honest admission from Moses and Israel that looks at their experience, or Moses drawing from 120 years of experience in life, says that life is full of toil. It's being, you know, sown and grown and blown and mown and then gone. That is life. Here's 120 years of experience. It's toil and it leads to death. And notice what he does with this. He is not puzzled over this. There's no puzzling here. Moses doesn't go through verses 7-11 and act like these things are strange. Like, how could you bring our years to an end? How could they be full of toil? How could they be like a sigh? How, how could we have this end in death? He doesn't sound like they're strange at all. He sounds exactly like there's a the result of sin. That the wrath that began, verse 7, is marking off a section. Because verse 7 starts with this wrath, and verse 11 ends with this wrath. And here's this section, 7 through 11. And in this section, there's this direct line that's being drawn between the wrath of God and our sin. The wrath of God and death. That is this section in verses 7 through 11. And so, readers, they may hear the words of verse 11 and actually give them consideration because the line couldn't be clearer. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? That's the question they need to hear. They, the experience of life and toiling and difficulty and sorrow and death doesn't lead Moses in Psalm 90 to questioning, it doesn't lead to puzzling. He doesn't go, why, God? Why is there toil in this world? What are we doing with all this? Why why is this going toward death? It doesn't lead to this questioning of God. You know what it leads to the questioning of? The questioning of self. It's not, hey, God, why is there sorrow and death and toil in this world? It's more, why sin? Because because of death and your wrath that is in the world. Because there's a direct line between them. He, he, He flips the question that we normally ask on its head, doesn't he? He doesn't say, why is all this in the world, God? He says, why would I sin if all this is true? Sin leads to sorrow and death. And I wonder if we've asked that question. Why sin if these things are true? Most of us know a culture that is completely okay, and not just okay, like arrogantly wants to approach and question God. Why God? Why would God allow suffering? Why would God allow all this this stuff that we do to just be toil and and painful and difficult and there's so much suffering and then it just goes to death? Why? Our culture is completely okay with that and arrogantly wants to ask, ask that, but we're not very okay with questioning sin. Like... Why would we sin if these things are true? And yet the connection in the scripture couldn't be more clear between sin and death between sin and suffering. that doesn't mean that all your suffering is a direct connection between your sin. But we know that because of the fall, that's when sin, that when sin came in. Death came in. Suffering came in. Things got hard. Toil started happening. Death entered in the world. And that line between sin and God's wrath and sin and death is clear. And nothing else is going to answer the question of toil and suffering and pain quite like the answer of sin. Nothing will do it. Right? Think about this. Why haven't we evolved to the place where we would survive all the time and not die? Why haven't we done that? Like, shouldn't we be moving in that direction? And yet, we don't seem to be moving in that direction. And it's not a fitness problem. It's a wrath of God problem. The mortality rates, they remain steady, despite our great technological advances. Why? Because death is not a technological problem. It's a sin problem. And God is over the end. He is the one who was there before any end started and He will be there at the end after our ends. And as the mortality rate remains at 100%, a good question is not why God, but why sin? That's a wise question. Verse 11 is a wise question. Have we considered the power of God's anger and His wrath according to the fear of Him? Man's brevity is certainly Highlighted here by God's eternality and is alarming in light of God's wrath and anger that is due to us because of sin. One author says this, that everyone dies because of sin. Everyone. Mortality rate remains the same. At the end of the day, when he allotted the span of life, when the span of life has been completed, all die under the righteous application of God's holy standard. This is a good time to be reminded of where Psalm 90 began. It says, God, you you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you'd formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Verses 1 and 2 are capturing the reality of relationship with God. And that relationship with God doesn't cut off the flow of the psalm and say we can't move to verses 3 through 11. Verses 3 through 11 aren't this odd morbidity, it doesn't lead him to that. Verses 3 through 11 don't lead Moses to depression or despair or discouragement. Because verses 1 and 2 are there, verses 3 through 11 are are still apart and can be held together. He's calling out here of the reality of who God is and in relationship to God, and then the reality of who man is in light of this and in light of our sin. And it doesn't lead to despair and discouragement. What it leads to is a calling out to God for mercy and help. Verses 1 through 6, our brevity and God's eternality. Verses 7 through 11, our brevity and God's wrath. And verses 12, this is where it leads. It all comes to here. Here's what he says from that. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. A heart of wisdom is a heart that is in awe of God, that there's, there's a sense of holy trembling before him because of who he is. He is holy. He is just. He has wrath against sin. It's his reaction to sin. And it takes that into account, and yet it wants to draw near to him. That's a heart that's wise and live under his good reign and good rule, living according to his word. And a heart of wisdom, he says, factors in death that numbers days. The numbering of days is not about a precise calculation, like you need to say uh, your life expectancy is 73 and a half, and so count the days and count them back till now, and you can kind of like figure that out and try to like live that to the fullest, and living, living that way to the fullest. It considers life's brevity. It considers life in light of God's eternality. It considers life in light of, of God's wrath. And it takes stock of those things, knowing that we're moving towards death under God's wrath and says, I better number my days. And I think that our culture, maybe we today, are particularly bad at this. Like we, we think about death and the numbering of days and we immediately move to the, the menu of distractions that is offered to us, don't we? Or we immediately move to, to like anti-aging creams or lotions or something to like preserve us, keep us from dying. Maybe there's a right supplement or vitamin that I can take that will just push me further. Energy boost that I need to go further. We push away death. Think about how quickly we move from someone who's passed and we, just, we move past that event so quickly. That numbering our days in verse 12. It, it may sound to us like, well, here's what we're doing. We're preparing for the future. And so make sure your retirement's in line make sure you have the money set up make sure you write down a book of memories and have a scrapbook with all the pictures that you want in it so your your family can remember you but all of that would be off with what verse 12 is trying to get us to because it's not about living just in light of the future though that is part it's about living in light of eternity that's what he's getting at with numbering our days we, we may or may not struggle with preparation for the future, but let me tell you our biggest struggle in terms of numbering our days, it's, it's not about just preparing for the future, it's that we don't prepare long enough. Whatever preparation you've done for the future, if it only includes here and now, your preparation has gone far too short. Don't prepare for the next 50 years, number your days, prepare for the next 50 million years. Doesn't that give a sense of urgency and weight and importance to each and every single day if you know that on the end of your days is eternity? We need to be resolved to live with the fear of the Lord each and every day that we're given. When we have breath, we should know that it deserves to be flowing in praise to God. And so while I have it, that's what I should be doing with it. That is numbering your days. Or Jonathan Edwards, he had this resolution. He said, resolved... Never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. That's the idea. I'm sure our phones and people in our lives could tell a story of how much we haven't done verse 12. We often don't feel this kind of urgency to use every moment and improve it in the most possible, most profitable way that we possibly can. We don't feel the weight and importance of the number of our days because we only see them maybe in light of some future that's not so distant instead of in light of eternity. There's a story that's told of three apprentice devils being trained by Satan. And Satan asked, well, what are you going to try today? He asked the leader. The first apprentice replies, I'm going to tell them there's no God. Well, says Satan, you can try, and a few fools will believe you. Right? Psalms says, a fool his, says in his heart, there is no God. But the universe shouts the existence of God, right? Psalm 19, we read that. There's evidence all around, and you'll not do very well. Indeed, even the secular 21st century, you may find yourself witnessing the slow death of atheism. Any other ideas? Second apprentice tries this he says i'm going to tell them there's no judgment." now that's a better idea says satan you will persuade more people of that especially some of the clergy yikes but human beings have a gut sense of accountability that actions have consequences they know what it is to feel guilty even when their therapist tells them not to all right romans one and so i think that you'll find it an uphill struggle anyone else says satan The third apprentice pipes up. I'm going to tell them there's no hurry. Brilliant, says Satan. That is just what you want to say. You will have great success. Let them listen to the word of God whisper and whisper in their ears, this is good stuff. One day I ought to do something about this. But tomorrow will do. I've heard too many people say tomorrow's going to do... Sounds really good. I'll get to that when I'm older. Maybe I'll be like that man on the cross and just confess it at the end so I can have fun while I'm here and now. And that is a heart of folly. And if your heart is there, you can know that your days are numbered more than you think. And a heart of wisdom says, let's number our days, which is not okay and would never be okay with saying tomorrow will do. No hurry. The right numbering of our days is to live in the fear of the Lord today. The day that we have breath in our lungs. A heart of wisdom, it... it, moves in relation to God right now, right here, as if I couldn't live another moment apart from the fear of the Lord. Don't listen to the lie that says tomorrow will do, no hurry. That's a heart of folly. A heart of wisdom lives in fear of the Lord today. And heart of wisdom leads to this string of requests for mercy and help that starts in verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. It's the same kind of words that he uses in Exodus 32 when he intercedes for the people after they've worshiped a golden calf. When he says, Turn your anger away from them, that's what he's getting at in verse 13. Relent. Have mercy. Don't give what we deserve, is what he's saying. Grant mercy. Don't just grant mercy, though. He, he moves on to verse 14 and 15. Return, have pity, satisfy us instead in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. If if verse six is true that that in the morning we flourish and are renewed in the evening, we fade and wither, then verse 14 and 15 seem to be strange, don't they? Like we're just sown, grown, blown, moan, and then we're gone, and yet he's telling us, for satisfy us in the morning, with steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad. You can make us glad all these days. Those don't seem to fit together. But here's what the reality is. Life may be grief, brief and full of toil, and struggle, and difficulty, and it is most certainly headed to death because of sin, but that doesn't mean that it has to be a life full of despair and discouragement, and it's full of melancholy. It can be a life that's still full of satisfaction and joy. Amen. Everyone's life is brief. That's true of everybody. In light of God's eternality, it's especially brief. In, in light of His wrath over our sin, it's especially brief and alarming and sobering. But those who know those things can still know joy and gladness all of their days because they know, verses 1 and 2, relationship with this God who is our eternal dwelling place, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting as God. He was before all this toiling. He'll be after all this toiling. This toiling doesn't get to then be sovereign. This life then isn't sovereign. God is the sovereign God. God. The brevity of life and all of its toils is true for all. And because of sin, death is coming for us all. And the only way to get to the reality of verses 14 and 15 is the relationship that he spoke of in verses 1 and 2. Relationship with the one true living God. How can one be satisfied in the morning with the steadfast love of the Lord if you know that in the evening we're all just going to wither and die? We're going to be blown and moan and we're gone. Well... You can be as if in the morning that love, that steadfast love flows to us from the one who's our eternal dwelling place as verse 1 talks about. Each morning that quickly faded for them, they would have known how God showed himself as this dwelling place as they experience his new morning mercies as manna dropped out of the sky and they get breath in their lungs again to walk in dependence upon God. And we haven't tasted any manna that I know of. Or maybe you have. I haven't tasted any manna, but we can know God as our eternal dwelling place, our refuge, our strength, our provision with us because we know that God came and made his dwelling place among us. Right? And he lived this perfect life. He dies this sacrificial death. He, he rises from the grave and he, he ascends on high. He is the one who has conquered death so that if we trust in him, we can know that he, he can be our eternal dwelling place. How can one rejoice in days that are, verse 9, they're like a sigh. <sighs> How can you rejoice in that? Well, as if in those days, one knows in the midst of their toil and struggle that God was before this toil and suffering and problems and difficulties, and he'll be after these things, and I can look to him. And each Passover and each feast of tabernacles, this people would have been able to remember their size in Egypt, how we were saying, God, you were slaves, you would you please deliver us. They would remember how God showed in those places how he alone is God and displayed his great power and strength And their toil that led to their redemption because God is an everlasting God. And we know, not the slavery of Egypt, but we know that life is full of difficulty and strife and toil. And we can know that it too, like them, can lead to redemption. Because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we can say, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, verse 17 and 18. And we can know this Light and momentary affliction that's here on this earth is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Because we know God as eternal, we can know that whatever toil is happening here is just brief and momentary because God's the one who's conquered death and is on the other side of it waiting us. How can one be glad for as many days as they are afflicted? Well, you can be glad for those days you've been afflicted if you know the God who's not just God now, but the God of all generations. He's not just a God who's revealed himself as a God of wrath. Remember what he said to Moses? He said, "Ah, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who, who is one who loves forgiveness. If you know that God, then you know something of the promises that he's made. In verse 15, what he's praying here, what he's calling out to God, is a plea for God to fulfill promises beyond him. Moses is calling, do something beyond me, beyond what you did for Abraham, beyond what you did for Isaac and Jacob, beyond even me. You've made promises to go beyond that because we're your people and we haven't seen life under your good care in the promised land yet. And so fulfill your promises. For Moses, some of those were not yet. But later, Israel would have said, yeah, we've received more of these promises, but they can still look forward and say, but God, you've said you're going to do more. And we know that more, don't we? we? We know that more in Jesus. God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. He's the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter three who crushes the head of the seed of the serpent. He's the one who reverses the curse, who blesses the nations, and he is the one who is now already gone and preparing an eternal place for us to dwell with him. Our years may be full of toil and difficulty and struggle, but they are, Romans eight eighteen not even worth comparing with the weight of glory that's stored up for us who trust in him. Our years may be only 70, but that is enough years to know of the greatness of the power of God. That is enough for him to fulfill the plea that Moses gives in verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to the children, to their children. Moses and Israel, they had their eyes, again, here, probably on the edge of the promised land. In the future, they're looking ahead and they're saying to God, do what you promised to do. It's a cry for God and his work to be established. And if they're his servants, as they say in verse 16, then it makes sense for verse 17 to follow let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The brevity of life that they face that doesn't say to them, "Now our lives here now don't matter. It doesn't lead to them to thinking, "Well, we know of God's eternality, and so maybe my work and the things I do now don't matter." It doesn't do that. It doesn't say, "You know what? You know you're brief, and so live like you're dying. Like Tim McGraw saying, you know, go skydiving or do it. You live it up because you're dying and so do all those fun things that you really want to do. That's not what it does for the people of God. It leads them to this plea, this crying out to God, to God establish the work of your hands. The brevity of life doesn't make their work and their lives before God, irrelevant. It doesn't make it unimportant. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. It actually does the opposite. The the work that they do actually matters. But for the work that that for they that they do to matter in a world that's full of the reality of verses three through eleven and dust and toil and all those kind of things, it needs what God's favor, His blessing. It needs His help to establish it, and that's the plea in verse seventeen. And it's a great plea, Moses. He had seen God's work and power in the Exodus. Think about the glorious power that he saw displayed in Egypt. And he saw, because of that, he he worked hard to establish good work in the wilderness. And he knew that he needed God to establish that work for it to matter. He'd felt the seeing of his work in the wilderness seemingly go unestablished. And that didn't lead him to despair, but it led him to cry out to the Lord, "Plead to God, would you please give your favor to us? If you, we don't have your favor, we're going to be like that generation. If we don't have you establishing the work of our hands, we're going to be like that. So he calls out to God, establish the work of our hands. Why does he say that? Because he trusts God in his promises. Yeah, he'd seen some work feel like it was vain, but here he is with a new generation at the edge of the promised land. They're getting ready to take it. And in that place, he says, God, do what you said you're going to do. He asks. Though he's faced the sting of work done in vain, seemingly, he still cries out to the Lord, give us your favor, establish the work of our hands. He does what God asks him to do. He walks in obedience as God asks him to do. Now, I'm assuming that most of us know some of the sting of work that seems to be unestablished, disestablished, seem vain, Unimportant and worthless. Verses 16 and 17 are prayers for us too. But we get to pray them in a way that Moses couldn't pray them. We get to pray them with more certainty, more hope, more confidence because we have more knowledge than he had. Not because we're smarter than him, more has been revealed to us. We didn't see the Exodus and the glorious power that God displayed there, but we have reason to trust this God. We have reason to look to the glorious power of this God because we have seen the person and work of Jesus. We can know his glorious exodus-like power in Jesus' work who comes and lives a perfect life and dies a sacrificial death that the, a new exodus might happen, an exodus away from sin and death. And because Jesus rose from the dead, Paul can say, yeah, all of your work, not in vain. Not one bit of it is in vain in light of the resurrection, says 1 Corinthians 15. It may seem that way, like it's just toil, it's just struggle, nothing is happening, it's only vain, but we're not to worry about what our work is doing, we're to call on God to establish the work of our hands, and we keep trusting, and obeying, and doing what he asks, and just keep praying and asking with great hope, and confidence, and certainty, because the resurrection established this work, we're certain that you're not going to waste a bit of it, making requests for mercy, and help, and favor, all that we see in verses 13 through 17, that's all part of numbering our days with a heart of wisdom. The heart of wisdom doesn't move away from crying out to God and saying, do these things. It moves toward that. And we can pray with great hope. Return, O oh Lord. You've come once. You said you are going to come again. Come back. Amen. Satisfy us this morning with your love, God. We, we've heard of manna, but we have true manna in Jesus Christ. And we can know that we have grace for today. Give us this joy because we know that you're at hand. Rejoice in the Lord always. The Lord's at hand. We need to see and be reminded of your work and and show us more of your resurrection power in and through your people. Give us favor, Lord. We need your grace or nothing moves forward. Establish the work of our hands. Here's what we can know this morning. Our days are numbered. They will come to an end. God knows every single one of them, every single breath. The one who's from everlasting to everlasting knows our days. And all those days, here's what we do know about them, they will have some difficulty, they will have some toiling, some suffering, some work that seems completely vain, some work that seems to be unestablished or disestablished, and we know that it's going to end in death because sin is in the world and sin is in us. But if we number our days rightly, each day will find us looking to God being dependent upon him as his servants. Each day will find us praying these things, singing to him as those who have relationship with God. Each day will find us looking to him and finding in him an eternal dwelling place. And numbering our days may not look like climbing into a casket. Although that's not a terrible idea. Be a good reminder. Could teach our hearts something. But if we know God is our eternal dwelling place, that casket that we could or could not climb into and climb out of and take a nap in would be no worry, would be no fear, because we know the one who has numbered our days is the one who we find our life in. Amen. Let's pray in joy together of who this God is.
2: Let's pray. And I'm not gonna improve on Moses' prayer. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning, With your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we've seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.